Good morning, everybody, or afternoon, wherever you are, whatever time it is you're listening to this. This is the Disco Posse podcast, and you're in for a treat because you've got Keyson Patel from MA Science. Keyson's also a podcaster, a great content creator, and somebody who really is has a mindful approach to his sharing of information and really, really wants to help people. So this is a great discussion around the the process of founding his original ideas and productizing them, working with a team. We talk about culture. It is it's a really great wide ranging discussion. In order to make great discussions like this happen, I do have to, of course, give you a shout out. And that is you all make this happen. We just blew past 100,000 views on the YouTube channel. So make sure you go check that out. And of course, who else makes this possible is our fine friends who support the podcast, including everything you need for your data protection needs from the friends at Veeam Software. I'm a fan because I'm actually using their platform myself for protecting my own real production data, have done for a long time and worked with a ton of people in the community. So if you want to really think about protecting your assets. We've got ransomware that's running wild and rampant. So let's get rid of the risk by bringing Veeam into the rescue. So easy to do. You can head over to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Takes you right to a perfect landing page. And I've also got a really great campaign still running. So head on over there. Again, vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Nice and easy. And when it comes to protecting things, it's number one, protect your data, whether it's at rest or in flight. And if you're somebody who does travel, even though we don't do much of it lately, you want to make sure that even when you're at home and when you're on other people's networks, you want to protect it by using a VPN. This is important because number one, gets control over your data in flight, protects it. And secondly, it also can do things like prevent unnecessary ads, perhaps even like this one, from getting through. So it's easy to do. All you got to do is go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash Disco Posse. I'm a customer and uh, I definitely endorse how it is important. Plus, I use it for web testing, which is really cool. You can actually choose your location. You can test for latency and see what the response is from different parts of the world. And while you're doing that, of course, don't forget to grab a nice, tasty, devilishly good cup of coffee from diabolicalcoffee.com. We got some wicked cool mugs, so go check it out. All right. This is Keysan Patel. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Keesan Patel with M&A Science, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Kisan, thank you very much. This is going to be an area where we can cover a lot of exciting ground. You're doing work through both the product side with what you've done with Deal Room. You've got more product work that you've done. You're doing work on the actual activity of mergers and acquisition. You've got a huge, you know, important and storied background in that. And you are a prolific creator of content both through you've got your podcast, you've got video work that you're doing, and thankfully I get to share some video time with you, which is great. And you've you've written a book. You are busy. You are uh, you've got a great voice, not just on the microphone, but literally. I love the way that you bring content to the world. Uh, so 
with that, if you want to give a quick intro for folks that are new to you, and we'll talk about what you're doing with m and Science and with Deal Room and much more. Happy to. My name is Kisan Patel, and I come from a background doing M&A advisory. I did it for about 10 years, working originally with private owners of small businesses to buy, sell, and then grew in the career to work with corporates on similar transactions at larger scale. Then the recession happened around 06, 07, re- did a lot of reflection, found that myself I'm aspiring to get into the software space got involved with a startup that didn't work out. But what it led me to was an understanding and the way that software engineers would use project management software to manage building software. And then I took that inspiration and started the company Deal Room a bit later in 2012 as project management software for mergers and acquisitions. Then learn shortly after, there's a whole bunch of things that you need to learn that go along with it in terms of how to build software, properly build good software, how to get market fit, how to really develop a go-to-market and then rebuild your software for scale. Because once you start getting customers, you realize that little thing you originally built with wasn't really built, stood up for scale. So it was a lot of fun experience. I was really fortunate in that journey. A friend of mine in marketing was, hey man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell's a podcast? And he's like, don't worry <laughs> about it. It's the next big thing. And that, that was probably the best marketing advice I ever received. We started podcasting about five years ago with a podcast called M&A Science. And I, I think the, way we, the one thing is fortunate enough to have a good marketing team that was really good at repurposing content. We would take transcripts of these interviews, write blogs, eBooks, and then recently published our second book. And then it evolved into doing online events, which evolved into owning and operating an online school for M&A. Uh, so now we have a few different business lines today, but background in a nutshell. Yeah, well, this is what's really sort of the key story when you talk about successful startups and I've seen it, you know, I'm lucky I'm at, at the point that this will go out. We're going to, we're, we're nearing, you know, we're just past 200 episodes. So I've talked to a lot of founders and, and I've, you've seen this consistency in the success is often taking real lived experience and then translating it into productizing and creating products that very genuinely map to experience that you've brought to that company. And it can be through as a technical founder or as a, as a business, you know, led founder and finding a technical co-founder because of your really strong background in M&A and then your willingness to bring it in the open, you know, through podcasting, people often say like, well, you're going to, you're giving all this stuff away. Why would I buy the book? Well, I've read the book. It's fantastic, right? Like it's, it actually, it's a great sort of, it's a first, it's a great read. Secondly, it's a way to kind of continue to go back and reference like, okay, where am I at it in, you know, we hear about sort of the magic box principle is another, you know, popular book and the idea of, of, where you are in the acquisition process but then when it comes to deal room i like this you've brought together two important things one you brought business to a technical platform and at the same time you brought development learnings through that previous startup to how you are going to build and scale deal room so i really want to 
find where those two things came came together. When did you know it was working? You know that it was going to bring these two things together, uh, or were you, you know, what were those first few months in defining what Deal Room would be? Okay, so th this is a really good question here. When I look at where we're at today and where we first started is very, very, very different. And I wouldn't say the attribution of success was so much the prior m a experience. That's what got the foot in the door. And I would attribute 10% of our success today from that. The other 90% comes from being obsessed, being extremely, and that's our, our competitive edge is that we obsess over m a We can talk about it nonstop within our own organization. I'm constantly encouraging team members to learn about M&A, be able to speak about it, understand the specific pain points, challenges. When we look at those early days, the problem you have when you come from the background in the industry is you bring a lot of assumptions with you. So with the experience that I worked in two primary, primarily worked in hospitality and small financial institutions, the experience I had in those markets is what I based a, a lot of the assumptions and how we should build a product and take it to market. And then you'll, you'll find out at some point, either sooner, ideally sooner than later, that you're wrong about a lot of those things. And then the right thing to do is build the feedback loop, really go through a process where you can validate your pain points that your problems you're solving for. That's a whole process of its own to be able to do that in an unbiased way. Cause one, it's our idea. We we have uh, some entitlement around it, and we we tend to ask people for feedback that know us, and they want to be nice and encourage us to follow and chase dreams and things of that sort. But that's not what we want. We want to identify who the cohort of customers are and be get the unbiased feedback on what are the key problems that you're facing and understand how I see it and if it aligns. We went through that process about. Going through the first few months, we started with an idea of building a marketplace for M&A. So we thought, here's the life cycle of deals. We're going to start off with the very front end. Where do you find deals? How do buyers and sellers connect? And that's where we found out we were wrong about a lot of things. We put this marketplace together in the first year, Eric. We operated it. We had about 200 deals listed and 1,200 users and realized we just built a sophisticated dumpster for deals. And it wasn't going to go very far. And it was at that time realized we, we need to go back to the drawing board and step back because it was the typical thing as a founder where you have ideas, you make an outline, what they call feature creep. You know, you build this massive outline with a hundred right. di different features you wanted to do. But then you're like, all right, let's start with the top and start building this front end stuff. When we went back and took more, I think if you Google customer development interviews, there's a lot of articles about it and, and it kind of walks you through how do you validate the problem that you're solving for. When we went through that exercise and the goal for us was to do about 40 of these interviews to really validate what we're doing. And we realized one, finding deals wasn't the biggest problem for the customers that we were looking to work with. It was more on the management side that there was a lot around how do you get deals through the process, coordinate with so many different people and drive efficiency. It wasn't so much managing the front end to find the deal. Is really managing everything in between to close. So we shifted our focus and we went through a whole other series of challenges because we focused on one market uh, and had a lot of uphill challenges where we didn't understand the competitive market, the legacy technology they were using, their sales model, a lot of whining and dining 
I mean, they just very relationship driven yeah. and we we're trying to go to market as a light touch technology solution. And that wasn't happening. You're not competing against steak dinners and nights out at the nightclub, ball game tickets with, uh, you know, funny marketing. Yeah, there's no dinner at Nobu option on the, on the, on the checklist of buttons you can click, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, like a free dinner with the, so that, uh, it took us a little while. We probably got into year two, three and realized our early adopters were actually corporates and we shifted our focus and started working with corporates back then. Then our product evolved as you work with customers and continue that feedback loop where we started solving for the integration challenges after they buy a company and need to integrate it. And now we're more recently doing the pipeline management on the front end. And then when I look at the product today, very little of it is from my original ideas. Very little of it. It's 95% from customers, uh, or maybe there's some little insight we got from engineers and problem solving. But um, yeah, so there, there's, I don't know. When I look at these, companies or aspiring entrepreneurs today it's so much of what i emphasize is really assuring that you're validating the problem you're solving for and continue that feedback loop as you start modeling out solutions even early mock-ups and keep getting feedback and it allows you to show people you've committed to it identify your early customers more importantly get validation so if you do go to market and raise money there's so much evidence that you've done to validate that hey i got this idea and i've talk to so many people. This is what I've learned. You know how to speak the industry language better, better speak on the problem you're solving and how you're going about solving it. This is the, the, when you read every founding story of a company, it's always like, this is chapter four and it's the pivot, right? And, and it's funny that like, chapter one is about the founder you know chapter two is about the how the co-founders meet and chapter three is the you know this is where it was it started in a starbucks in san francisco or a pete's coffee i guess is probably the most more common thing you know or in in chicago i don't know sure what the local favorite coffee joint is but then chapter four is ah we realized we had to pivot and it's like it sounds like a shift in a timeline like it happened on a weekend but it's it's a grueling process to be able to evaluate and make sure that you're doing the right thing through that process. When you began it, Isan, versus when you were on the other side of it, what was the, where did perception deviate from like how long and how challenging that process would be to pivot into what your market approach was? Good question. Um, I think I, I remember asking a friend for advice about marketing and he said, I don't want you spending a dollar in marketing. I want you to go back to the drawing board because I don't think your business model is where it needs to be to put marketing money into it. And he challenged me to go back and really validate the problems that we're solving for. So that, that went, that, so it took some time because we really went back to the drawing board and did it in a different way we got out of the drawing room and went out and started talking to people, went through a whole series of interviews. I was fortunate I had interns that summer. So I had some extra help and it's nice when you have two people doing the interview, one person really focused on asking the questions. Right. And important to learn how to go about it because you, you want to approach it. Uh, two things. One is being dumb 
where you put away your assumptions, assume you're wrong, assume you know nothing. So be dumb. And then two, be curious. I think sometimes we get a little, we ask a question and move on to the next question, but that's not being curious. Being curious is really getting in there. Like, well, why is that happening? Why do you have that problem? Well, why does so-and-so do that? And digging in until you really identify some root causes. I think that going through that and then being patient where you can know that I'm not going to have a couple conversations and change my mind or go make a big decision like pivoting the company, but that we can make a commitment at the time we committed to doing 40 of these interviews. And that's what really led us to see a pattern from these different interviews. Then we started realizing like we needed to shift and, and focus in the area that matters most to the people we're looking to sell to. It's a, it's a real challenging period in a, in especially in a founder's life, because like you said, you, you have to, you have a hypothesis and, you know, down the road, eventually the hypothesis may not be, it's not that it was wrong. It was just that at the, in order to go to market, there may be something else. There's a hidden treasure amongst the hypothesis. That's the actual marketable productized thing that you can bring but it's it's such a weird thing when someone just asks you that bold question of like what if you just actually you know talk to somebody and, and set, found out whether they actually need to solve this problem <laughs> yeah. i remembered working actually ironically enough in a merger with with two large you know companies at the time i worked at sunlight financial and we were merging with clerica and i got brought into they're like one of those like they tap you on the shoulder can you come over here and, and i need you to sign this paper and we're just going to bring you in and, and chat with a few people and, and i was one of the technologists that was in the architecture team and we were suddenly in a room with these people like oh these are all these senior architects from this other organization not hard to put together what's about to happen and so we were as you said right bringing our our assumptions bringing our sort of bravado to like i know how to do this and and then after a couple of days we actually brought in a fellow from microsoft and he was this young young kid we say that i'm like i'm an older gentleman i could say young kid proudly he's about 26 years old and he was from the consulting services and he walks in and literally it's like he walks in puts his jacket down he looks at the diagram. He's like, what are you trying to achieve here? So we need to bring these two, you know, directories together. And it was, you know, and he just says, what if you just created a third directory and actually just got rid of these two altogether and just bring them up? Like, and like the brashness of that approach, like immediately we were like, oh, you're torn. Cause you're like, I don't like that. I've got to give up what we just did, but you're like, Ooh, he's probably right. <laughs> yeah. And that's what it was. Just like the fact that that question got asked by a third party allowed us to be free in accepting it. And that's what's really hard to separate yourself from because you bring the hypothesis, you bring the, like the team, the idea, and then somebody comes from outside and it's such a beautiful moment when you're like, Oh, you're right. I should really think about this for a second. <laughs> you never ask too many questions. No, and that's it. So, you know, and through the that moment, I'll say, right, you've been in M&A advisory for a long time. So how did it feel that all of a sudden 
you were you had probably been the person that would bring that question to many people. And all of a sudden it was being asked of you. What was that feeling like? It's it's so different now. We coming from a background when you worked with clients, you advised them on transactions, represent them as buyers, represent them as sellers. So today we are a company that's based on products around education and technology. So I feel like we're the uh, closest resemblance is the people selling the picks and shovels to the gold miners during the, the rush days. Uh, we're seeing a lot of increasing activity around M&A, a lot of interest around it, uh, at different even new sectors, even smaller companies are starting to think about acquisitions earlier. And for us, we provide a lot of educational resources around best practices. How do you go about doing this in a way that doesn't disrupt the business so much that a lot of people get pissed off and quit and you lose a lot of value when that happens. Yes. Uh, and, <laughs> and instead keep everybody motivated and aligned so you can hit the goals that you originally planned with doing the acquisition. Uh, to also the other technology part of our practice is setting up what is now a, a life cycle management solution that we can take all these, a lot of times their companies are using a bunch of Excel trackers and a lot of communications primarily through email and we'll set it up in a nice stack so there's a single database to run your pipeline run your diligence management coordinate with all the folks you need to both internally externally enable good collaboration and also preparation for those integration activities and use that same environment so you can run and, and actually execute integration you don't have any delays the team members having to relearn all this stuff they learned about the company already uh, and that's, that's been another great part when working with organizations and setting, setting that up. And then today, now we're working with larger multinational companies like BP, Johnson, Johnson, Cardinal health, Emerson. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very different from going from one end where you worked on a smaller transaction, but you're very hands-on you're in the middle of the deal directly working with the client, the, the, the lawyers and really hands-on making sure the deal gets through. Uh, now to to be on the other side, we we get to work with the team, but we don't have all the intensity or pressure that we do. And uh, I, I enjoy the problem solving part of it because you're dealing with more, which you're familiar with, Eric, with the technical challenges, like like yeah. uh, combining the directories and things of that sort. Uh, and for us, we get to do it on more of the logistics through the whole process. So we don't get into a lot of the the technical, the nitty gritties of the challenges with, with uh, integrating companies. But um, it's fun. I, I definitely like what we do now. I, I like the fact that we can come up with an idea or a way to solve a problem and scale it out, get it in front of a lot of people. And that brings a perfect sort of question around scaling. And you've talked in the past on, as a founder, sort of the the right time, the right time to scale and the, the which is probably one of the most common mistakes that people do. It's this idea of like going, you know, when's the MVP ready? And that's another one I hear all the time. People are like, if, if you think it's ready, it's too, you waited too long. <laughs> yeah. And also the challenge of you've talked in the past about people that build for scale when they haven't even gone to market. And, and where, when you developed your platform, did you find that sweet spot where those things needed to line up? I remember for us, the pivotal moment was when we had our site crashing almost every day and we had paying customers. I remember specifically, we had a $200 million deal we were managing 
and it was so hectic and chaotic because they're trusting us with managing a significant transaction our site keeps crashing bugs were popping up and that was that was the point we knew we need to build for scale we ended up bringing in a cto that helped re-architect rebuild the product to follow a microservices architecture and build a team that knew how to write code for scale now the the i mean it's funny if we look back at that i mean remember even you know twitter was sort of famous in the early days for what we called the fail whale right and it would be down for hours at a time quite sometimes it was actually down for a couple of days at a time they had active people they were bringing into this platform and it just couldn't keep up and it would just go down and you know back then there was no you know is it down or is it just me.com right <laughs> you people just sort of generally accepted but now it's funny you know if you launch deal room right now and you had suffered that kind of an outage the risk would be, I think, much different. The level of acceptance of people on the dependence of software and availability of that software, like it's it's integral now. Uh, you know, what do you think if you if you had had that sort of challenged moment right now? What would it look like to your customers and and keeping them? You know, that's an interesting thing because you see this thing happen in the market where companies can get hacked into and nowadays you got to be prepared. It, it could be anything. It could be one employee fall for a phishing scheme and it, the same password everywhere. Now you're very vulnerable. Um, I, I, I think that's, um, I don't know, it's a challenge of its own. It, it's a challenge of its own to really uh manage i think if we had to deal with it today we'd have a lot of calls but i don't i think you'd rebound over it i just if you look at all these organizations like what was solar winds uh some of these other firms we had the big one with a what was it aol uh, not aol yahoo and that was right. right mid acquisition they had a big breach they had announced that's right yeah worst possible time right <laughs> yeah it is but like i think i feel like with the solar winds it's it sort of it, it created a lot of awareness I feel like it made it tougher for the startups out there that are working with large companies. Now they're getting more scrutinized in terms yeah. of how they're handling their security. But in, in terms of them, they, they definitely like bounce back. And I, you know, that, the old saying that there's no such thing as bad press, Eric, the older I get, the more I believe in that. You think about the news with Robinhood and everything recently. And I'm like, yeah. I'm buying their IPO. I'm like, no, that's all good. It doesn't matter. Like it just got their name out there and everybody in the world has heard of Robinhood now. Uh, I'm in like, they'll, you know, and you can always take the bad character and become good. We've seen Microsoft go through its cycle in terms oh, yeah. of how it market looked at it. And now they've completely turned it around. But they, as long as you're in the news, you keep building brand equity. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think it, we would we would probably explode with our uh, support. You know, if we had something like that that happened, but you'd recover from it. Knock, the, I'm knocking on a lot of wood to make sure. Yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> And and then let's talk about going beyond product one, right? So you you have deal room, you are doing a lot around the education, and you're wrapping stuff around it with M and A science, like you're, which is really cool. We'll get into that. Actually, I, I I'm really excited about that area. Then you've got, you know, so you sort of solve one problem, and then you say, okay, well now we've we've got to effectively build this. You know, everybody has a data room, right? And and so we've we've gotten this problem solved of managing the flow of the of the diligence and the transaction 
And so you've got other products that you're developing. So let's talk about the rest of the uh, sort of portfolio. Yeah, we have books. We look at them as products. We wrote a book called Agile M&A. It's a fun book. It's, uh, you know, the whole trend right now in software is taking Agile, making it as complex as you can with scaled Agile frameworks and things of that yeah. sort. And we did the opposite. We took the idea of Agile and dummied it down so even a high school kid could understand it since that's, uh, you know, where we got to make it for our finance folks to quickly understand as well. And we, the, and the origination of it too was a lot of the things I noticed our own engineers were doing, I kept correlating to my M&A experience and thought, we should have done this. We should have managed diligence this way. This would have been way more efficient, made a lot more sense. And I started blogging about it. I don't think to this day a single person has read those blogs, but it led me to interviewing Google and Alassian where those ideas were validated. I brought up some of those examples and they're like, yeah, we're actually doing that. And a lot of it stemming from the engineering culture. Yeah, yeah. That's That was a good wake-up call. That gave me inspiration motivation to write a book tell the put a case study behind it then i remember christina elassi was like don't just write a book make it a framework now look at our team plays so we took a lot of inspiration from elassian's team plays and build around the idea of having game plans and plays and i've actually encouraged practitioners in the industry to write their own little techniques and then that was the bigger problem like even going back to starting the podcast it was the idea of starting a podcast in our industry wasn't simply to get talk time. It was aligning it with a mission where we noticed in working with these corporations, there was a lack of standardization. All these large companies we're working with had a very unique way of doing M&A. And that's where we realized the bigger problem was the fragmentation of the industry. Everybody's essentially working in a silo. It's not like accounting or law where there's a lot of common bodies to reference and standardization. Right. M&A didn't have that. It's just all wild west. Everybody's got their own way of doing it. And that led to the idea of, can we find what actually works? Can we throw some science here and find where the proven techniques are, identify them, have some evidence around this? With M&A, it's difficult. It's not quantitative. We're not transferring currency and we analyze a bunch of quantitative data. Instead, we do qualitative interviews, just like we were doing with those discovery to validate the problems we're solving and how we're going about solving uh, the problems we're trying to solve for and how we go about solving them. Now it, it was about can we take that same approach? And we're already learning so much around this, but interview practitioners in the industry and enable them to share their lessons learned. And in doing the same approach, we're doing a series of these interviews and identi identifying the patterns to really understand what are the key challenges practitioners face, how have they overcome them, and what, what actually works. Do we see a specific way that actually works? That, that's what started this whole series of building content for M&A based off of those interviews, but then creating dedicated resources to build more structured content like the courses and things of that sort. This is the, the beauty of your approach is that you, you, you continue in the true agile fashion, right? As we, 
we look for what's the next thing this is the the og sort of waterfall approach of of stuff we've seen it fail uh, in every possible angle of both business and technology it's been successful despite itself i think is really the truth of of that early project management world but you know nowadays it's really fantastic that you can see it come into play and and look it's we talk about you know you know Gene Kim is sort of one of the the greatest voices around you know early movements with DevOps and but he says I I took everything from you know from Deming and from Goldrat he's like I just took manufacturing stuff and then brought in here Eric Reese of course lean lean startup is about based on yeah. lean manufacturing they're human behaviors that when you unlock the science behind it you realize that we've I mean, you can have opinionated approaches to things, and you know, you see it play out <clears throat> in the M and A space. There are sector-specific things that are have to be fairly opinionated for regulatory reasons and such. But generally, like you said, there's a playbook. There's a there are things that are in there, and then you can find the wiggle room around that. It's we as humans, we almost don't want that it to be that simple, I guess. It's kind of a funny, you know, it's a dichotomy of the human system is that we're like, it can't be this easy. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's some real truth to that. Well, humans tend to complicate everything beyond. There's a lot of stuff out there. When you look at best practices and look at agile, all these techniques, there's too much out there. I think that's what makes it challenging is there's so many things you can look at in whatever vertical, whatever industry or function you're in. But ultimately, one common element that really drives success is a culture of continuous improvement. When we mentioned lean, I think that was my favorite part of lean. They use the Japanese term kaizen, which is a word that translates to good change. But in reference to lean management, it's continuous improvement. My youngest son actually named Kaizen because I, my wife had a dispute with my with giving my name. So somehow the compromise was Kaizen because I was reading a book on lean management at the time. There but if, if it's one thing I could drive in any organization to create value is continuous improvement as a culture, becoming change-oriented. Too many companies get stagnant. It just happens. It can happen in startups in various ways. But the more you can continuously drive to continuously, uh, you know, influence continuous improvement, you you really get something good there. That's where we keep adding new products, we, we're identifying new problems, creating new solutions, pushing ourselves to improve on all fronts. But I, I think that's the one common thing that really drives a successful organization is that culture. Or if you're in that situation, you're working a larger entity. There is a lot of stagnant pieces that need to be awoken and revitalized with that kind of approach. Can you reformat the culture and still uh, that uh, change-oriented values? When it comes to doing something like this that has a a financial impact, sometimes with it, you know. Is there additional responsibility that you feel in the rigor that you have to apply to the software development process and the way you run your your teams? Because it's it's dealing with sensitive financial transactions in the end, and especially when it comes to stuff like firm room, where you're dealing with really true regulatory public information. It's uh, I'm. 
this is one that often separates people. The moment they say like, the moment you have to touch money, stop developing your software because it's a dangerous game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. There's a lot. If you don't know what you're doing, you could waste a lot of money, which I learned the hard way. <laughs> you could waste a lot of money quickly and have nothing to show. Uh, you know, that's why I'm, I'm a big believer in taking the light, do rapid prototyping in the beginning to really validate what you have and then have this clear expectation you're going to re rebuild what you stood up in order to have it ready for scale. Um, that, that part is, um, definitely one component of it i think thinking back the biggest challenge was balancing that with the security nature like you mentioned today it's a never-ending thing where every year we're dumping more and more money into security dealing with uh, adding more certifications it's all the SOC 2 pen test you know whatever yeah. other certifications the more we we grow as a company we just reinvest into the that front i think especially it makes it easier now being all virtual that you just reallocate uh, office expenses into your digital infrastructure, which includes security. Um, early years was extremely difficult. It takes about three years to really get security nailed down. But looking back out of it, there's some deals we've done on the platform that we should not have been doing. We just did not have things set up the way they should have. Uh, it really takes, there's two parts. There's there's a infrastructure and how you have that set up um, and then there's your actual application and what, what are you doing for us? Because the nature was managing highly sensitive information. We had to learn, we had to learn what are the key things that help with that automating watermark. So if a document does get out, you can trace it back to, to who leaked it out and, uh, making sure you have a really rigorous audit trail, which isn't common in software that every single click or interaction is tracked and logged and auditable. And tamper-proof at that. So there was a right. lot, lot of little yeah. things that, and then you, you had to learn how to build that stuff. Uh, that it just was a challenge of its own to really create those kind of functionality. That I mean, it's truly secure. You know, like I said, you, you start getting things, but security is a roadmap. Like that thing, never—it's a never-ending roadmap. <laughs> For sure. You, and you got to keep updating it and, and prioritizing it. And work with external teams to help you find out where you should be prioritizing but yeah that's you, uh definitely you can't a lot. treat security like a juice cleanse you know like this is not a thing that you just throw developers uh and a couple of weekends at. like it's like you said it's an evolving thing especially as we see new compliance frameworks that come in new regulatory you know things that we got to be prepared for but it's funny when you say like the the early days there was stuff where you know at the systems, you know, may not necessarily today stand up, you know, where you were, you know, four years ago on this stuff. But the funny thing is it was being done with paper being passed across tables in the past. Like there, the irony is the rigor that we're held to in systems technology is far greater than the failed human to human interactions of literally people talking in open hotel lobbies about a potential deal. And meanwhile, you know, you've got people from some hedge fund just sending all their interns to walk around the base of every Shangri-La to see if they can find out what's going on in the world. Yeah, that's so true. That is very true. Now, the the next piece is the idea of 
giving good information away and guiding through the community and the result whether even planned or unplanned often of like actually eventually leads to bringing business and i think this is a beautiful thing right i love that you've got such a great education opportunity in what you're doing and you're doing it through blogs and you're doing it through your academy and then you probably will find by bringing this real good in education to the world that those people will be like hey when we're about to go through a deal like i i think i know where i want to go the feet the folks that taught me how to do this it's a it's an interesting move in business that you can educate first and then business often comes as a result how has that played out in in how you've done work with the academy Eric, if you're going to build a startup today that's software focused, a part of your strategy should be building a media company within your company. That it's becoming a must because that's allowed us to really position ourselves as a credible resource, trust our brand and allowed us to dominate over competitors. We have competitors bigger than us and we're outranking them in global Alexa rankings. We're getting better speakers at our events, at our uh, podcasts. We're more in, t- in tune with the community. And that's the biggest driver of it is the fact that we're running a media company within our organization. We're 30 people in the business now and our marketing functions 10. So there's a in full stack. We got everything in-house editors, podcast editors, video editors. We got multiple writers, full-time designer, just a marketing. It is uh, such a perfect phrase. I'm going to steal that totally from you. I love this idea that yeah, it's the media really is such an important part, and we miss it because, like you said, number one, it, it gets your voice out there. It, it allows you to create this beautiful narrative through storytelling. And that's why so the way that you're the, that you write is beautiful because it's like reading a conversation and it's, it, it's not quite often, especially in technical you know, companies, they treat it like technical writing, not like technical marketing. And they're very, they're different things. It's a nuance, but technical writing is like manual creation very distinct flow, very machine-like in the idea that simplified, to the point, no fluff. But then technical marketing is show something technically, show something that's detailed. And in this case, you know, and the M&A is the, you know, the, the tech, the, the function behind it. But make people care about what they're reading so that they stay through to the end. And like I said, I, I'm a fan of your content because the style of the writers that you've got has shown that, you know, I want to get to the last paragraph every time. That's great. I'm glad. I definitely got a great marketing team that that drives a lot of that. If you... Now, in going to the M&A side and, and your your background when it goes right it's easy to you know recreate history on how it went right when it goes wrong 
it's really tough for us to visit that. Uh, and but when it does go right and go wrong, how do you how do you use your retrospective view to you know go to the agile format to look back on a deal wherever it went? And really bring that and try and find data and signal amongst what happens to then influence the way you would approach it the next time. You know, for us, we're not hands-on. We're not in there engaging with the actual employees of the company that's getting acquired. But we do spend a lot of time with the companies we work with really understanding how their deals are going. Where do they see value getting leaked and what are the outcomes? Then going backwards and understanding what were some of the causes around that. I, I'll tell you, and this is the fun part to get into this. When we see M&A go wrong, it's because of the people. It is not a financial, somebody screwed up the model. It's people having problems. Communication problems, uh, accountability problems. That's the reason why, and that's why you'll see billion dollar deals get screwed up. We see deals where it, they did it for five billion. A year later, they're writing it down to one billion. A lot of value loss. Probably a lot of people left that company. Uh, you know, and I, I hate tattling on some of it because I, I don't want to throw our own clients under the bus. But we we've seen it where they've bought a business unit for three billion dollars and had a lot of aspiration on new products that they were going to introduce. A year later, the whole executive team left, frustrated with the way the integration was handled. And they end up writing down that business a year later for 1.3 billion, and we've not five years later. There's no innovation coming out of there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What would have been probably a company that was on its up and up could have been a five ten billion dollar company today, uh, or greater. But you know, it's it's gone. It's it's just going to be a small little thing that's in a stagnant state and will probably stay there. So I it, it's such a critical thing is a people experience. And I would say the lesson learned from doing hundred of these M&A focused podcasts is all about the people align it from the very beginning. No surprises. What you have plans and what you're going to do with that company you're acquiring, put that front and center, put it to the point where you, there's clarity and uh, crystallization on what the final state's going to look like when both companies come and merge together. And bring that in the front so both executives, the buying executive and the selling executive CEOs are aligned around it. That's one, is what that's, the vision is going to look like. From there, they can start developing a go-to-market outline and, and understand how, how, what that's going to look like. Uh, I think the other thing is for those two CEOs to understand values. A lot of the problems when we talk about people, conflicts, and frustration are because of the culture clash. We've seen a lot of examples of that. If you can align around that early, the way to, to really root it is by getting clarity on each organization's values, then getting a sense of, hey, how, how's this going to work? You know, your organization has a really rigid top-down management approach. We're a flat, you know, believe in agile empowerment and have our folks running their own show. You know, how's this going to work together? And we may not yeah. want to fully integrate. Maybe we can still work together, but keep some the level of independence and be open and, and clear about it. That that is a different culture and, and it's not going to just integrate together. That stuff gets lost out the window. And, and I think you rooting it by values allows you to really align 
it's when you do build a story and have the communication publicly to the employees, the customers, the vendors on this a, a big event that's going to happen, that's going to create a lot of change and why it's happening. Um, and then also like validating it that, Hey, we, in, in addition to that story, we also see how, why we're going to get along and can really articulate it well. And that's an important thing. Thinking about the events that happen after you close, it's a lot of change management, the largest amount of change management organization is going to go through. I mean, there's a nice narrative and everybody's aligned around the rationale for the deal. And there's a good story on, Hey, this is actually exciting. And I want to be part of this. Like, heck yeah. Like there's, there's opportunity for growth out of this. If this comes together and the organizations create the value that they see by combining these entities and creating a better solution for customers to be happier and acquire more customers, this is a great thing. And, and now I see what they're doing. I want to be part of it. But when you're left in the dark, and all you're dealing with is your own fear and uncertainty because you're just like, oh, this acquisition's happening. I know what that means. They're going to want to cut costs, right? And I, I know there's not room for two, you know, lead PMs in, in this in this team or whatnot. So that fear, uncertainty, doubt sinks in, and I'm I'm going to look start looking for my other job. I haven't even heard the news yet, but I'm already out there. So I, it all comes back to the people. If you can manage the people experience from the very beginning make it engaging. The other thing I think often doesn't get done in M&A is a reverse diligence. You're doing diligence to understand if the company's worth paying for and the risks of it. But at the same time, you should be encouraging them to do diligence on your organization so they understand how it's going to fit in as you complete the acquisition and be able to ask some of those questions, be able to get clarity, make them part of that that uh, understanding earlier. Um, you know, I, I think that and empathy at the end of the day if you can look across and we talked about curious earlier but really spend the time to understand people are frustrated and you can see in their face you can always start when you interact or meet somebody and obviously doing a lot of this on video but you could tell if they're happy you're having a good day you're having a bad day something's up you have something you want to talk about you can see yeah. it and if you lead in with that people tend to open up and really sense them out like get a good understanding and some things you got to put out there and just put yourself in their view and get a sense of what are they thinking and saying, Hey, you're probably dealing with a lot of change and a lot of extra work right now. And then they'll tell you like, yes, I am. No, I'm not. Just be listening. That's like the most important thing. I think M and a, we get so much caught up in a plan and, and driving top down management, pushing to change. But at the end of the day, people know the people are dumb. They know what they're doing. You just got to level up with them. If you can take a, flip the 80-20 ratio around and spend that time just to listen and understand, you'll get a sense. You'll know. You'll know what they're concerned about. You'll know where, where their head's at, if they're motivated, if they have a clear understanding about what's going on, if they're committed or not. I mean, until you have that, there's no point in talking at people. It's really wild that, like, and that, that carries into every part of our interaction with people, right? Even when, you know, I mean, I'm in front of analysts all the time and in customer situations. And I, I sort of, there's a great book called The Coaching Habit, which is one of my favorite ones. I use it a lot for leadership. And so it starts with the simplest thing is the first thing you ask is what's on your mind, right? And give them the chance to like immediately convey. And then the, uh, the favorite thing is the second question. He calls it the awe question, A-W-E, and what else? Because they'll always like sort of have a canned response and then 
you say and what else and like so i'll do this even in situations where they ask about your technology like how are you better than or different than x or whatever and i'm like well what's what's the what's the thing that really excites you about that that platform that you're talking about and they they go through and and i don't even have to ask the and what else question sometimes because they'll as they're talking up this thing they'll be like you know what i really wish it would do and it's just like it's like being in a therapy session it's so fantastic versus if i had gone in and like you said just treated it like a diligence exercise of like you've asked me these questions i will show you the technical comparisons if i throw data at it i can give it all the context i want but in the end just be humans to each other like it's it's so amazing the impact it has and at the end of that experience especially when you're dealing with M&A, like the amount of uncertainty, it can have a profound effect, not just on the, the direct human impact, but the actual value of the organization that they're buying in the end. Because like you said, you if you don't have, if you have a lot of uncertainty, it creates certainty. People who are certain that they're going to get out before they find out what's happening, <laughs> they'd rather control the outcome. So they he said, I don't know the outcome yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to end this way. So I'm leaving. <laughs> and it's, I see it happen all the time, you know, with, especially as startups get sort of consumed. And when I was at Sun Life, it was a 5,000 person organization that was buying, you know, buying a 5,000 person organization. They were on the buy side of the transaction. They were the end name and the brand would be attached to it, but it was literally like mashing two ships together and the leadership exchange was was very interesting because then you would have this all these people underneath are trying to work out the org charts and it wasn't obvious who was going to you know thought in the end and it's a really weird experience because by all matters of science it should just it works right mm -hmm. We know we've got the org chart here, the org chart here. Perfect. Grow the business, do this, follow the details, profit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, us, uh, us humans get in the way of that. <laughs> I did. I had an interview with one of the HR leaders. She was in a global HR role at the time, uh, Sally Cunningham. And she said it best where a happy workforce generates more income. So I think if you just yeah. keep that in mind, you know. But, you know, to go to, what you and the team are doing, you know, both through being able to educate on here's the process that you're involved in, right? Here's how you can take best practices and bring it in there. And then it gives you the confidence that the platforms that you've created are built on these foundations of like, these people know what they're doing. So it gives us real credence. You've got skin in the game. You've lived the life before you came to start the company. It's a it's this beautiful flow. And like you said, the truth is, you know, like we've said it today, I've heard you say it before. It's like Excel is probably the number one software tool in the world for everything under the sun. And, and it doesn't need to be that way. So when you show people that there's a better way to do this, it creates that happiness that Sally talked about. It creates the comfort that, hey, we're using a system that's built by people that understand what we're going through. And it lets them focus on the matter at hand, which is retaining their culture through a merger and 
that there's there's very few schools on that <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. No, there there isn't. And it's interesting because you're they're talking about changes amongst us behavior and way we work together and think about which really stems to a lot of core leadership skills. And then uh the other piece when we talk about like the technological solutions, a lot of people are fast to adopt, slow to adopt. And that's a whole area we didn't really talk much about when we talked about the startup cycle where there's a lot of ideation going to market, uh, you know, getting the market fit and all these things you have to do to really prepare to have a product you can take to market. But the distribution model, that's actually the hardest thing to get right. And have you seen it? We've seen it so many times where it's the best product, but they didn't have the best distribution model. And we've seen it where the lacking, lagging product actually ends up being the winner because they had a better distribution model. And I mean, look, uh, I'll say this, this is my opinion and my opinion alone, right? Microsoft has a lot of bad products, right? But yet they're out there all over the place. Like we, I, I say this as running a lot of Microsoft organizations over, over based organizations over time. It's, it was hilarious that we used to joke in the early days of like, well, they've just got, they don't have better products, they have better marketing. And, but it really was, they had better distribution. They had ways in which like, and it didn't even make sense if you looked at it by the data, right? If you were selling Microsoft software, you made like one point on the deal. It There was no margins. There was no way to discount it. Uh, you were literally just a pass through to write down the contract. You were papering the deal and then you would try to hopefully wrap services around it. So by all measures of how it should go, it shouldn't have worked. And yet they became dominant because they they solved a specific problem and then they marketed it so beautifully and, and created a distribution channel to make it easy to consume and get. And that was truly it. And now with the ability to digitally adopt most products, distribution is, is really different, right? So on that basis, Kisan, like you've, the, what's the distribution solution, right? What's the, the thing that you saw as your way to differentiate in distributing you know a um, platform today you know you that's the whole thing to figure out like we talked about validating your idea validating the solution when you're validating your solution you should be validating your go-to-market really understand how's this customer how their channels to learn about new products get information who do they actually trust and, and understand where the, you should spend the time to to uh, find their influence uh, I think that that comes in shapes as an ongoing partly, I think there's other drivers with a startup where you start off with one view on what you're solving. And, and as you explore the market, you'll find different areas you want to focus on. For us, we started with smaller M&A deals in the beginning. And as we now work on with the larger companies, we're working and know that, hey, if it's a larger company, they're going to have bigger problems. And it's, interesting to solve bigger problems and inherently you get compensated better for solving bigger problems so you sort of shift the model and start going upstream and we went dramatically we went from a hundred dollar a month self-service solution to now we're selling enterprise anywhere from 30 to one hundred fifty thousand dollars uh annual subscriptions so vastly different but it, i think that that's one big part is understanding that uh, what what problem are you solving for what market and what's the value of it 
you know, we all, a lot of people are familiar with that. You typically tend to go lower than you actually should. Uh, we learned that too. We've, uh, we've been bumping our prices up every year for, I don't know, since we started the company and it's always been the best, everything is always net positive results. We end up getting more clients and selling more. Um, there's, there's so much truth to that perception of how you price your solution. Yeah. If you price it higher, they value it more and the more likely to use it and make sure they get value out of it. Where <laughs> if you give it away, nobody cares. They'll just, you know, throw it away and never use it. Uh, so I, I, I think that's, and then there's, there's the pricing model part, but then there's a, a huge part around the language, the, how you talk about the product, how you position it. There, there's so much that goes into, it. I gotta give a lot of credit to the marketing folks out there. Like that's, that's not easy. There's a lot of in-depth psychology to, to learn and it's a never ending learning thing. And how, how do you pull that language you learn when talking to people about their problems and solutions? pull it up front and, and really make it part of your, your website content, the w- things that people interact, the way they part of your brand. And there's a lot, lot to really think about. Um, and then it all ties back together to, I think your values tie back to there in your organization. Because when you think about distributing your product, a lot falls to customer experience and your values drive parts of that. And there are the pillars of the customer experience that you're putting out there. So how is your team aligned around what they're uh, committed to on values that then transposes over to customer experience? And that in turn lends into your distribution model. And, uh, you know, one thing we're, one of our, our key first values is responsiveness. We manage confidentiality and we could be working on a billion dollar deal and not even know it. So we just treat everything like a high sensitive billion dollar transaction and are extremely responsive throughout the company. So that that's one thing, but now that goes over to the customer experience that goes into our distribution model. When you reach out to any of our sales team, interact with them. That's the one thing I want you to be very immediately understand that they're responsive. When we're done with the meeting, you should get a nice summary follow up and it should be prompt and they're not going to wait around where, where these guys go. Uh, yeah. that, that's a big thing. That's part of our values that then comes out when and it comes to customer experience that affects your distribution. So that, that very much is how people are interacting with you, what perception they're getting, especially if they're going through competitive process and evaluating benchmarking against competitors. So this brings the good question of how did you, how did you scale your culture through the changes in your go-to-market? I don't know if it's scaling culture. The culture shifts quite a bit. When, when you think about a company and you start with just two people and you're like, okay, I'm going to you know, think and design, you're going to build. Uh, yeah, and you influence each other right there, just like you, you see it when you have a, a partnership. Uh, and then you add people and it's so critical in the beginning. And I re- really wish I put a lot more thought and emphasis on the culture when making early hiring decisions and made that the primary driver then followed by the capabilities. Sometimes there's a trade-off, you know, you're going to work with somebody in a unique role and they're going to maybe quirky and that's just what it is. And that's fine. But are we aligned on values? You know, are we, are we committed to this? Then the responsiveness will keep 
picking on that example, when we go through the interview process today, that's that's what we're looking for. We're looking for how long does it take for them to follow up this interview and how well of a follow-up did they do? Attention to detail is another value in our company. So we want to see how well they wrote the follow-up. Did they say, thank you, nice meeting you? Or did they really summarize the key things we talked about? And uh, I, we had one candidate, they knew the values we talked about because we reviewed them in the interview process and articulated why they would fit be aligned with those values. It's like, done, you're perfect. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so when it comes to scaling it, I, I think the one thing I didn't understand, about, I thought it was a soft, fluffy thing you just put on your about page to you know, give some warm, fuzzy feeling for some website visitor. Uh, but no, they're, they're really real. You should, when you think about envision your success and where you want to go and you reverse engineer that, it should boil down to those core values. And then you build off of those core values when you hire people. You make sure they're 100% aligned and let that be your leading driver to make your hiring decisions. And I, that's probably how you scale your your culture out is you know, doing it, you know, think about the end vision, where, where do you want to be? How do you imagine the company operating and reverse it, get commitment from other current team members you have, you know, work with them as a workshop and saying, Hey, I really want to do this, right? I want to have these core values that we all can stand for. And we make this part and we do it. First interview, you're going to hear the core values. Second interview, you're going to hear about core values. Final interview, you hear about core values. <laughs> and it just, it just constantly there. Um, but it's just reinforcing it saying, Hey, this is what our expectations are. You know, I don't want you to go through this process and find out there's, you know, culture fit. We want you to interview multiple people and get a sense of the culture. But this is what we aligned. We're committed to these core values, and we want we want to make sure that reflects and that that you're a fit for it. If you're not, if you're not that person that's ultra responsive and, and attention to detail, then maybe this isn't they're going to be the right fit. Like let, let's let's talk about that. You can be missing. I don't have attention to detail. Maybe you're you have one you know, what are the values you, you may be a little behind in, but that's fine. Let's, let's see where you're at with the rest of the organization. Yeah. It's just the, it's not just the message that's written behind the reception desk. Culture is how they behave when you're not looking. Right. And if you're not willing to go right to that, right. And like I said, approach it early in the early hire, and and it's funny i so I, I use the phrase scaling culture and i like that you sort of said it's not really scaling it's it's it is an adaptive process and i love that you've been able to be you know curious on that in that you've accepted that yeah, yeah some stuff happened it's like we figured it out and but just the fact that you've assessed it that way you've never said like well you know Here's a core. Where's the original values we had, and some people deviated. Like, no, we've adapted as a company as we change. It's this is what builds successful culture. Is you know the willingness to listen as much as to you know send them a link to the corporate values page on the website. <laughs> if, if I were to go back and do it again, I would have introduced core values earlier, much earlier, and would have evolved them too. I think as right. a company. You, all those things will evolve. Those things, the way you talk about yourself, those things will evolve. I think one key thing is try to get your positioning down early. Like that's the most critical thing. You know, we went and positioned ourselves to sell directly against the legacy competitors that were data rooms, and that that pinned us down and probably stunted a lot of our ability to have this detailed positioning that we are different from them. We're, we're a lifecycle management solutions, the, what we really evolved and shaped it to. 
I, I think if we had that positioning earlier, it would have helped the market understand where we actually sit that's different than what they're used to. Right. Um, but I think there's there's some, I've seen that where companies, even within, you're in a big category, you can still carve out a niche and saying, all right, you know, we're, uh, whatever, we've done all the organic stuff now. You know, it's like diapers, but organic diapers, or, you know, we, we do custom printed diapers. You know, that's kind of our thing is like the customized baby. I don't know, but you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, now it's artisanally can, crafted, uh, you know, whatever there's like, there's some other moniker you attach yeah, to. Yeah, you can get that early also. I feel like that took us a little while. We, you know, we were kind of battling with data room, data room plus project management, jumping around with, with different positioning. Um, so some of those things we really, marketing team's critical again here, but get, get the heads together. Uh, kind of put together all the learnings and then really come up with something that there's a, a good commitment behind. Yeah. And I, I love, again, the the curiosity of the process and the willingness to go back and look at, at what went right and what could have been done differently. And then letting that influence your future decisions and like accepting that, yeah, you know, it's funny. We made these mistakes early on versus most people are like, no, we're here because we're here. And, and it's, it's, it's very easy in that human behavior to just say, we've been right. The market's been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good. You know, we talk about com continuous improvement. That's the thing is creating that culture. I think one key thing is encouraging people to face those things, the criticism. You know, I, I guess we want positive criticism, but sometimes I don't have time for that shit. You know, I don't have time to sit there and tell you the good and make you feel all warm and fuzzy. What I just got to get the, the, the good sandwich where you're like, I really appreciate how this is going. And you're like, Oh no, here it comes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> let me just go straight to it. But I, I think one key thing is brief. Occasionally you have to brief the team. Like, look, I want to give you direct feedback because objectively, if I can help you get better, the team gets better. And I think that's one part is you got to preface it. You got to mention it here and there, remind people because they do take that communication of personal business and fuse it together. So you need to remind them to consciously split that up, put personal yeah. out to the side and take the business context I'm providing to you. Uh, I'd say that's uh, one piece of it. There's another, I'm losing my thought on this one. We had, uh, what's it? Go ahead. Yeah, it's just, but this, I'll say Ray Dalio really kind of became prominent in this idea of like the the radical transparency and and radical candor. And it's funny, I've actually interviewed a few people that have worked there and they're like, yeah, it's radical candor is not a good thing because some people just think it's a license to be an asshole. But there's a way in which people have taken that fundamental and been able to say like, you can still be empathetic, but be give truth and transparency and it is about like don't dance around it like i'm i could sit here and i could tell you you we're doing you're doing great in your job i you know you're you've had a great few months like all you're doing is just setting them up to wait for this hammer moment so you could versus you say one thing we, we we want to sort of solve right now, there's a problem that's been happening. And, you know, so I want to find out what's the right day we can work together and we can get this fixed. Because, yep. look, things are going well. We've got lots of great stuff. What can we do to fix this particular thing? And just 
And just make that the focus. Don't try and hide it amongst a, a compliment sandwich. It's yeah. I think making sure there's a why attached is another big thing. That's very much in conjunction with this. That you get the criticism, but it's got to be clarity on why. That hey, yeah. we're doing this to specifically improve this. Uh, then the other thing, anything, anything you put in there, you should have a why to it. I, I teach my kids early when they start learning how to say thank you and sorry. It's like, don't just say thank you and sorry because they're very transactional words that have no meaning to it. I need you to add some meaning to it. Tell me why. Thank you, why, for what? And uh, they, they start, they, they think about it. And, uh, and I remember we, we always go to restaurants and it was, thank you for the great service and thank yeah. you for the recommendations. My daughter would go to the grocery store, check out. You know, thank you for being so quick. Thank you for the conversation. Add some context to it. Sorry for what? Sorry for bumping into you. Sorry I lost your umbrella. Uh, and same thing in the workplace. You're going to ask somebody to do something, add a why to it. You know, make sure there's some clarity on why. And a lot of times, people, nobody wants to be told what to do. So can you look at something and frame it as a problem and invite them into the conversation as a peer to solve the problem? You know, I, hey, the, the bathroom's super dirty. Go clean it. It's like, how can we keep this bathroom clean? Well, you know, maybe yeah. I'll put this, we'll put this reminder to myself and, and I'll make sure it gets done. Uh, okay, great. You know, you don't have to tell people what to do. I, I think if you identify it, frame it as a problem, invite them in through a question, then it creates this nice lateral positioning that you both work together to solve it. And more likely, they'll know where they need to step up and they'll own it too because they presented the idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's the involvement of it. Boy, oh boy. I tell you, I would, uh, I can say the folks that work with you and for you, Kisan, are a lucky bunch. Uh, you're, I don't know about that. They're going to get a lot of me all day. <laughs> but they, you've got to, I, I really respect your approach, uh, the platform and, and the, and the education you bring. So, We'll definitely we'll make sure we point folks to it. We can talk about should... how how easy it is to be a hypocrite too, because <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole thing of its own. Everybody's on a soapbox with some great things to preach, but uh, reality is it's extremely difficult not to be a hypocrite. <laughs> it's hard, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's the, there's a, a real difficulty in taking the the tenets and making them practices. You know, it's very easy for us to, yeah, like I said, to point to the wall, look at the culture statement. The culture statement says, you know, we do this. And you're like, but, you know, like transparency with confidentiality is an interesting line too, because you want to be transparent, but like, be careful. There's certain things we absolutely cannot cross a line of transparency on. And it's, it's a human challenge to make sure we build a separation. I get asked all the time, like we, even if you go into like analyst, you know, or specific customer situations and you say like, look, we signed non-disclosures walking into this room. You know, of course we did. But if you say you mentioned a customer name that you're not supposed to mention outside of this room, they're humans. They're going to go to the next person and said, yeah, these guys are selling to X. <laughs> so yeah, there, yeah. there is a, you know, there's a point of making sure that you can understand that human behavior. And I, like you said, creating accountability and, you know, eliminating hypocrisy. It's a challenge because we're always, we're always forced to, to split a line. And as a leader, right? Unfortunately, as the founder, as the head of the company, 
you sometimes have to make very difficult decisions that may seem at the moment to be hypocritical or antithetical to the values, but there's legitimate, immediate things that need to be solved that require hard decisions. I can tell that you would approach it in a way saying like, there's the why, like, I don't like what we have to do right now, but here's why we have to do it. It's, it's creating a framework. It's creating a communication framework that evolves into a decision-making framework and having your team aligned around it so that if you're not around, things will carry on. They'll know that there's a process, there's a flow for the way they communicate, the way they bring up the problems, the way they make decisions on how to solve them. It's uh, we need a framework for life. So I'll look for that. That'll be the next book. Uh, yeah, Keystone's <laughs> framework for family success. Uh, I'm working uh, on I, a bio, I, I so we'll, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> I am my my two year old daughter. She is so funny. She'll like she'll like run into something. Like she'll like just like be running around and she just like smashes into my leg. She goes, "Sorry, daddy." <laughs> like yep, she yep. doesn't even almost know why she does it, but she knows. Like I I bumped into you. I should say sorry. It's so cute. And then, like I said, when they get older you want them to add the context to it so i, like I, I think about four or five years old you know get them to start doing it then and you, you'll be surprised you'll i remember going to a, a fine dining restaurant with my daughter she was only seven years old and uh, when we're checking out uh, she, she told told the server you know uh, andy andy thank you so much for the great service and the recommendations you made and the woman at the table next door just like cracked her head the whiplash like <laughs> oh my god you know you're the and she's just like, how do I get my son to do that? I can't even, you know, so it's, it's funny. And it's just, it's, it's something that's, it's just good. Cause then they can build off of it. A lot of the Ray Dalio principles are great. I actually read Ray Dalio's principles to my daughter when she was seven. And obviously way above the reading level. I just, I got done with Harry Potter. I said, I, got, I actually want to read this. It actually does the job. It gets you right to sleep. This will be great. But it led to a lot of good conversations when we talk about open-minded versus closed-minded. How do you establish these goals and build milestones to it? And I started doing it with her ever since then. Just, hey, let's talk about these goals. What are you trying to do? Well, if you're trying to do that, what do you need to do? How much time do you need to spend towards those goals to make sure you go in that path? And let's start thinking about what are we doing between, you know, what's your taking up your time between proactively using it and reactively using it, your brain and these little nuanced things. It was fun. It was really good. That, that's what actually go. led to the personal podcast. I know we didn't talk about that at all. But I started it this year. It's called Boss Move. Uh, but I interview influencers about what are their top three principles for success and leadership. Oh, nice. And, and then I, I, we can collaborate on that. We, we do a little workshop. So imagine the audience are high school kids because you can't come out and do the Gary V, be empathetic, be vulnerable. It's like, yeah. well, no. That, what does that mean to, to a high school kid? You got to really break it down into some practical how-tos. And it's a fun, challenging interview because you, when you start thinking about it, you're getting into a lot of details about, well, there's some mindset components there. How do you take that thinking and build it into a, a real behavioral pattern that becomes a part of you? So it's, it's a fun, fun interview. That is wild. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely have to to pour over that one. Uh, and and that's when I'll recommend we'll make sure I get links as well as part of the the show notes. And and there you go. There's uh, so Ray Dalio and his authoring team. They need principles for teens, principles I, for, you know, at what like it would be great to have like principles for, you know, the five year old range. Like there there's definitely the ability to take that almost like parables and like Aesop's fables sort of took these idea of 
of stories and made them accessible, but they really were truly telling these big, bold, you know, almost biblical type of of things, but then they just made it about bunnies and turtles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm I'm, ho I'm hoping because we, we have the model in M and A science where we'll extract what we learn and write up plays, and they're the step by step how tos. And we started drafting it pretty early in moves for this boss move podcast. You take learn this life lesson and do a write up. Like how do you turn it into a practical how to? And one day I love to see it evolve into something like Khan Academy, where here's a free public school that teaches you the life lessons that you don't learn in school. There you go. I'm holding you to it. We'll be back in a year with Keyson to announce the uh, the moves. The moves. Boss Academy. <laughs> That's it. I love it. Excellent. Well, Keyson, thank you very much. Uh, and for folks that did want to get connected with you, what's kind of the best way that they can do that? You want to learn M and A? We have over 350 published pieces of content. You name it, we got it. It's on mascience.com. If you'd like to connect with myself, I'm always on LinkedIn. Just Kisan K I S O N Patel. That's it. I love it. Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I definitely recommend people get in there and take in this content. Uh, it's fantastic. We'll have links to the podcast as well. And uh, yeah, now. They, Listen to Boss Moves. Go do it right now. Go click that button. <laughs> do yeah, subscribe. My, my, my uh, principle is discipline. You got to have discipline, be committed. So if you're interested in M&A, want to learn, you know, check it out. I, I love your style. I think you did a great job interviewing. I enjoyed this conversation, Eric. So great. Thank I'm you. Looking forward to, to following you and, and seeing who uh, who's up next in your roster. Maybe I'll be lucky and I'll be able to get on the Moves podcast. That's my that'll be my new goal is I, I be be valuable enough to to make it on the Boss Moves. <laughs> hey, yeah, let me know. Start thinking what are your top three principles. That's uh, I think that's a good one. We talk about what lends to values. You got organizational values, but do you have values personally? And are there certain principles that shape those values? And then is that something common you have with your partner? I don't know. But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on your principles pretty soon. All right. Mark the calendar, kids. We'll be on that one. Great. Thank you very much.